Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, to one of the kind of famed passages of the Bible, but in particular the Gospels, on loving God with heart, mind, and soul, and loving your neighbor as yourself. When you understand this uh, text in light of the context and the storyline around it, it has a little bit more of a pop to it, even just than what you read on the face. And so I'm hoping this is a, a good passage for you um, this morning. Let me read our text, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. A teacher, which is, a teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, this is a text that is read in terms of devotional life, I think. The standard of what is expected of all of us to love God with every fiber of our being, every facet of what makes us who we are. And that the overflow of that love vertically then extends to loving our neighbors ourselves. That's sort of the simple and easy application. What is sometimes readily missed on the face of this text, is that Jesus is reaching out to the Jews right on the kind of basic eve of him being captured, killed. He rises again and then he departs. So right before his uh, capture and departure, Jesus is addressing a question asked of him by a Jew who is also called a lawyer, who is also in Mark's gospel called a scribe. Back to Matthew's account, he is one of them. Who is he one of? He's one of the Pharisees. Jesus is seen here on Wednesday of Passion Week evangelizing Jews, in particular a Pharisee. A broaden in the next paragraph, which I'll leave to next week, verses 41 to 46, where Jesus is ongoing to evangelize the Pharisees, to evangelize Jews. It's an interesting text to consider in light of uh, last week's events and the, weeks, uh, the events that are captured in the news, what I preached on last week, which is what's happening with the Jewish nation, Israel, what's happening with God's chosen people, how does it relate to Bible doctrine, how does it relate to the past, the present, and the future of Israel? Will Israel be saved? We know that the Jews are here in this text rejecting their Messiah. This is a gospel in particular, written to the Jews for them to see Jesus as Messiah. That's what Matthew's written for. And Jesus is taking a special attention right now and a special um, sort of focus to evangelize Jews right before he leaves. 
And all of this sort of has kind of captured my interest in terms of what's happening to God's people now because Jesus was concerned for them then. Jesus going to the cross is uh, a statement of condemnation on the Jews who are apostatizing or, or rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the Messiah. They're sending him to the cross under Roman rule. And this statement of rejection is powerful to us. And Matthew 23, the next chapter, is chock filled with woes against the Pharisees, which was representing the false religion that had stupefied the Jews in works self-righteousness. The Pharisees were tying up these heavy burdens and leading the Jewish populace away from Christ. And Christ is going to indict that and pronounce a damning judgment on the Pharisees. And yet, In these preceding paragraphs, Jesus is still answering questions and asking questions to win the Jews to Christ. I think that's just important for us to see. Look at chapter 23, verse 37. Not only are there woes, but there's also the lament for the Jews. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sin it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. There is a heart for God's people here. Romans 9 is where Paul echoes this. He says he's speaking the truth in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 9 in Romans, I'm not lying, my conscience bear witness, bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the kinsmen according to the flesh. He wanted them to come to Christ. And we know that Scripture has promised to literal, physical Israel, physical ethnic Jews Um, as a nation that are promised, even though there is this season and realm of apostasy that we see both in the Bible and also now in rejection to Christ, that one day there'll be the remnant represented in Revelation, the 144,000 who are ingathered as believers in their Messiah. All of this is preamble to that. Jesus is reaching out to people who are Jews to believe who are now yet under the spirit of stupor, Romans eleven eight, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah was commissioned to preach so that they wouldn't hear and they wouldn't see. There was a blindness and a judgment against unbelief that was predicted and prophetically fulfilled and is being fulfilled now. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus is reaching the lost In particular, here, the Pharisees, Pharisees who represent the one single sect that was the surviving sect after Jerusalem would fall in AD 70. They're the survivors. They're the one for whom all of Orthodox Judaism is built today, these Pharisees. So tying these things together is of interest to me, both in terms of current political events. You see Lebanon on the north, Hamas on the south, Hezbollah. They're, they're sort of a two-front battle against the Jews, and they are warring back. And yet God has a greater plan in the midst of these things. And I want to point our attention there, but I also want to make this very personal to you. 
If you've not yet believed, this is a passage that will open you to belief if you are open to receive it. If the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see what's here, you'll see that this is a call to true faith and belief. And then for those of you who are discouraged today, wondering how my unsaved loved one, my religious loved one, or my apostate loved one, or my loved one who, I, who is irreligious or non-religious, how can they come to faith in Christ? Well, Jesus didn't give up here, and neither should we. The Word does the work. So what is the storyline here about someone coming to faith in Christ? Well, it begins with the Pharisees. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They're gathering in a war room. They're gathering in desperation. They're gathering together. The Sadducees, the ones who don't believe in the resurrection, who were kind of the liberal religious people and the arch enemies of the Pharisees, were probably stunned by the fact that Jesus just, you know, sort of waved off their trap and answered them in a way that left them stupefied and left the Pharisees now as the final the final approach against Jesus. The Pharisees know that on Wednesday of the Passion Week, they don't know Jesus is going to the cross necessarily, but they know that he's there. They know that he's front and center. They know that he's been hailed king of the Jews, and he's, he's warded off the Herodians who tried to trap him by saying, you know, who do you, um, do you pay taxes or not to Caesar? And he answered that, you know, render to Caesar, to Caesar, to God, what is God's? I mean, he just knocked that trap right down. The Sadducees are saying, what about someone who in leveret marriage is married over and over and over and over again, and they're in heaven one day, who they married to? All this is illogical, right? Because there can't be a resurrection, even though you called yourself the resurrection and the life. And Jesus said, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now present today. So obviously, there is an identifiable resurrection promised for heaven. So he thwarted the Sadducees which theologians will joke. You see, they weren't Pharisees. They were sad, you see. <laughs> all right. I said I wasn't going to do that first hour, and then I said, sure, I will. Anyway, all that to say, I get to have a little bit of nerd fun for a moment. All right, let's move on. The, but the, now you have the Pharisees, and they are gathering together, probably cooking up with uh, both triumph over the Sadducees, but also fear that this is their last shot at Jesus. And then verse 35, it says, one of them, one of whom? One of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Test meaning to trap him, to trip Jesus up. But there is some interesting, I use that word nuance, some, some detail here uh, between Matthew's account and Mark's account. If you harmonize them together, you see that the Pharisees are all caucused over in the war room trying to figure this out. And then you have one of them, one of the lawyers, he's watching them debate and He's a Pharisee also, and he tr trims himself out to Jesus and decides to ask his question, which is his test for the teacher. And if Jesus can't answer this, then yeah, Jesus is disqualified. He's not Messiah. But this is a question that was near and dear to this lawyer's heart. This is how I'm, um, this is how I'm outlining things. These are conversion questions. This is a question that's asked of Jesus first. Then Jesus in the second section, 41 to 46 for next time, he's going to ask a bunch of questions. So we're talking about questions and evangelism. How do you reach people for Christ? You answer questions and you ask questions. 
First point under conversion questions, answering a question, going to the heart. That's what Jesus does. He gets the question and he goes right to the heart of the questioner. It's an unusual inquirer, as we've been talking about. This is a Pharisee. Um, You have Herodian Sadducees, you have Pharisees, you have Essenes who are kind of the nomadic cult um, spinoff of the Pharisees. You have the Zealots who are wandering around trying to kill Romans, um, Roman guards and people um, trying to take take back uh, Jerusalem from Rome as Zealots by force. And then the Pharisees are front and center. They are the Orthodox um, Jews of the past who, are, who, are, um, who the Jews now are the modern descendants of. And you have what are called two kinds of Pharisees. And this is what Will Varner uh, in his book, Passionate About the Passion Week, talks about. He says there are good Pharisees and bad Pharisees. Now don't change the channel on me yet. Um, that's an old um, ism. We used to change the channel with a knob in our hands and fa- back in the day. Who, who actually had a TV where you did that? Let's just wake the crowd up. Okay. All right. Okay. You can put your hands down. I'm speaking to a mixed crowd here. Who has no idea what I'm talking about? All right. You, the younger section. Okay. What we're talking about is good and bad Pharisees. Uh, everybody is lost in sin. Everybody's totally depraved. We're all, apart from the grace of God, going to hell. We understand that. As believers, even though we're saved, we still have the, the residue of sin in our own heart. We understand that. But you had softer-hearted Pharisees and harder-hearted Pharisees. That's what I'm talking about, good and bad. The title of my message is Becoming a Good Pharisee, by the way. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you had two kinds of Pharisees. You had one under the teaching of Shammai, who were more rigid with the law. They applied the law fastidiously. And then you have those who were under Hillel, who were freer in their applications. Um, this Pharisee would have been a freer applier. The, uh, the Pharisee of Shammai would have abused the law. They tied people up in heavy burdens. They freed um, the husbands up to leave their wives if, if their wife burned dinner. And, um, and then you have those who are under Hillel, which would have been like Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus, who was, he was kind of the father of the Pharisees. In John 3, he went to Jesus by cloak of darkness. And, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you must be born again. You have to be born again to be a believer. And ultimately, John 3, I think, evangelized Nicodemus because in John 7, you have Nicodemus standing up for Jesus when when Jesus was under oppression at the Feast of Booths. Nicodemus said, "Does does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then later in John 19, 38 and 39, you have Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Pharisee. And then you have Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. And you see Joseph asking for the body of Jesus, again, um, under secrecy for fear of the Jews. And you have Nicodemus, who with Joseph is there by night, gathering the body of Jesus to bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 75 pounds of weight. So they wanted to... um, Again, pay homage to the the death of Christ as believers. Paul was a Pharisee, and his name before Paul was, class what? It was Saul. He was Saul the Pharisee. He said of himself in Acts 22, I was a Pharisee. I was um, one who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was educated, Acts 22, verse 3. And then Philippians 3, 5, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. But he was converted. He was converted. 
And so now you have an unlikely Pharisee in this text, and I want to build the case based on the parallel passage of Mark that this Pharisee was a little bit more open than the others, that his temptation of Christ was less of a trap and more of a test. Like, if you're the real Messiah, you'll be able to answer this. But if you're a fake Messiah, if you're a would-be Messiah, at this moment on the steps of the temple, you're going to fail. And that the Pharisees probably lifted their head up from their, you know, war room dynamic and said, oh, okay, Tommy's out there. Sorry if you're named Tommy. Tommy's out there, the Pharisee, and you're trying to trip Jesus up with your own personal test, but we're all in and we're watching. We're watching. Where do I um, get all of this idea? Well, you, you look over at Mark 12, verse 28. It says, One of the scribes, who's also this Pharisee, who's also this lawyer, it's the same person. He's a scribe, he's a lawyer, he's a Pharisee. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing. So he was sort of outside of the the main group, and they were disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, Jesus had answered all the different religious groups, the religious sects well, he was curious to ask his own question. He answered them well, he asked him Which commandment is the most important? So this Pharisee is holding all of this in his heart, and he's wanting this question answered. He's a Pharisee who is um, trying to bring sense to what has maybe gone wrong in his own experience as a Pharisee. It's a question that is on the heart And this Pharisee is probably more sympathetic to Jesus than his senior partners. Um, A law, a lawyer or scribe or Pharisee would have been a master of the law. This person would have known the civil, ceremonial, and prophetic parts of the law backwards and forwards, top to bottom. He he knew the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes and the Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. He knew the major prophets. He knew the minor prophets. He knew it all. He had written it out several times. He was scrupulously well-read, interpreting the law. He knew the Talmud, which was the commentary of the law. He knew the oral traditions, the enforceable application of the law, Matthew 15, 1 to 3, Mark 7, 1 to 13, he knew it all. And that's this unique inquirer. And he asked a question in verse 36. Uh, He wants to know if he's missing the forest for the trees. With all my study, I've gone undergraduate, I've gone graduate, I've gone PhD, I'm the top of my class, I'm the head of it all, I understand the law, but I'm kind of burdened by something. I don't really know the meaning of life now with the law. How, how does this all mean something for me? So he's giving what would be an unanswerable question. Only the Messiah could dig me out of the, of the, the malaise that I'm in. It's a soul-searching challenge that he's asking. That is, which is the great commandment of the law? What's the one thing the whole thing is really all about? What's the true point of all of this religion? What is the main idea? Um, Pharisees were constantly occupied with Torah, the law. They counted, classified, weighed, measured separate commandments of the moral, ceremonial, and civil law. Uh, through their computations, they concluded that there were, listen to this, 613 commandments. I think this was research from Will Varner's book. And 248 positive precepts. 
Now, these numbers were um, used in parallel with the, the number of bones in someone's body. So they were trying to computate, you know, their literal physical life in light of the law. That's why they would use those computations. The law is everything to me. Self, put it this way, self-righteousness, self-actualization through my righteousness is what I'm all about. And he's stuck. He's stuck, whether heavy or light commandments, he can't figure it out. And he's wanting to see if Jesus can unscrew the inscrutable to him. Would Jesus be stumped? Certainly the Pharisees wanted him stumped, but this man, I think, was representative of maybe a younger generation. Think of our modern younger generation. We have you know, those who are called the um, Gen Z group. They're the ones who are... Um, classified according to this uh, modern article and post, uh, they're disengaged, they're exhausted, they're the sleepy generation at work, they're willing to job hot, hop or quiet quit at a moment's notice. At the core, this may be a story about each generation's differing expectations according to the New York Times. They're looking for any reason to slack off according to this survey. They're unmotivated, unskilled, a bit contentious. But where does all of this um, sort of branding of, of the disengaged come from? Well, I think whether it's actually true about the younger generation in Toto or not is not my point. It's just the idea that uh, a lot of younger people have looked at what older people have lived for and they're sort of calling the bluff on living for your job identity and your life's work as the meaning of, of life. It's the idea that you have the um, millennial generation or the boomer generation before them that worked really, really hard um, to put food on the table, but in, in, in the process of doing that, found a false, empty identity in self-righteousness. And so what's the meaning of life is the question that's being asked by this lawyer, this scribe, this Pharisee, which I think is a question that a lot of young people are asking themselves. How do I get motivated in life? How do I unlock my um, sort of go and, and, and do and what, what is my life about? That's what this lawyer is asking the Messiah to answer. This question was asked 50 years before of the rabbi Hillel, who I mentioned before, the easier rabbi. He was asked by a Gentile um, the same question. He said, if you can answer the question standing on one foot and you can boil the law down to one thing, then I'll enter in. I'll join up. Hillel said, what you hate yourself, do not do to your neighbor. He gave him another works righteousness answer. He said, this is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go learn it. It was the reverse of the gold, golden rule. It was basically do this one thing, but minus heart change. And what Jesus gives instead is an absolute answer of heart change. Look at verse 37. This is the drama of the story. This is the apex of, of what we're learning about. Jesus gives an answer that blows the mind of this Pharisee. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. All right, now this is quoted from the historic 
um, passage in Deuteronomy 6, which is called the Shema passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and it adds the one category, might, with everything you've got. This was what Moses left the children of Israel with. He, he left this word with them for them to carry it into the promised land. Teach this to your children and your children's children for generations. Pass the fear of God on that you should love God in this way. Bind it around your head. Keep it on, on your hands. Have this law in front of you at all times. They took it so seriously in the Old Testament context, in that context of, of the uh, people of God, that the men would take little boxes they called phylacteries and they would stuff little scrolls of Deuteronomy 6 inside their box to keep it um, physically in front of their eyes, which was kind of an over-application of what Jesus or what the Lord meant. But it's love God with all of your being, your whole self. That's what Jesus answers this man's question with. The meaning of life, boiling down everything you've ever learned, Everything you've ever studied for, everything you've ever all been about, even though you're trying to trap me and trip me up right now, I'm going to give you the answer to the meaning of life. Love God with everything you've got. Half-measured love for God, half-measured love for Yahweh will not do it. It will leave you unsatisfied, empty inside, wishing that you were outside of religion altogether It's just this half-in sort of dynamic where you're like, I think I love God sometimes, but not all the time. That doesn't cut it. It's very unsatisfying. He's saying, no, the answer is to love God. This is the one thing that all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the wisdom literature is all about. Love God. Love Yahweh, the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's a massive statement. Jesus is answering something that's very obvious that a lot of people jettison the law over. They, they say, yeah, the Old Testament doesn't really matter. But it's because they don't understand it in terms of what Jesus means here. Jesus is saying that to, to love God with everything you have means that God has opened your heart to love him this way. That's what he's doing. It's a conversion answer. He's evangelizing this lawyer saying If you understand that the law of God begins with love, which is rooted in faith, then you'll understand everything that this is all about. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is profitable. What was Paul talking about in that passage? All scripture, meaning all of the Old Testament. That's what was written at that time. It's all profitable. Why? Because when you're converted, you can love God through the law. The word all here which is hale, means whole. It's repeated three times here. All of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Think of it this way. It's not that we have three different categories um, that make up who we are. Um, We're not trifurcated. We're outer and we're inner. But it is talking about different components of who you are in this sense. All of your affections, all of your joy to God, all of your love to God. All of, your, all of what you feel should be directed to God in love. All of your mind, all of your thinking should be directed to God. Don't make up who you think God is. 
Don't make a sentimental, weird God. Don't, don't believe God is something that you can imagine up who's like the old grandfatherly Santa Claus in heaven. That's not who God is. Don't make God into some evil, stoic, deistic being that's just gonna, gonna thump you when you do something wrong. That's not who God is. God is all of the attributes of God. He's the fullness of God seen in the vision of how scripture describes him. We understand him even on a deeper, more intimate level as we look into the face of Christ from Scripture. We're loving him with all of our mind. R.C. Sproul said that we shouldn't read the Bible. We should study the Bible. We want to study God from Scripture. We love him with all of our mind. So all of our heart, all of our full affection is given to God. All of our thinking is given to God. And then all of our soul is given to God. What does that mean? Well, that means that you, you are recognizing that you're an eternal being. So this isn't just at one point in time that you love God in this way. You love him with all of your heart and eternally all of your soul with all of your mind, everything you've got. I think all of your might is just sort of understood here. It's left out by Matthew's account, but it's all of your strength. Everything about you is in love with God. These are overlapping terms, and these are the terms of conversion. And I can't emphasize this enough that to love God in half measures is really counterproductive, isn't it? It's, it really sort of sterilizes the soul. Uh, we're not going to be perfect, and you're not going to always love God with all of your being all of the time. But if you're wondering why you're dissatisfied in your devotional life, or why you're dissatisfied when you talk about God, or why you're sort of struggling in discouragement, you should examine yourself in light of a text like this and say, Lord, help me to begin to love you in a more full way. Show me where I'm, I'm weak. Be vulnerable to God and pray a prayer like that and say, how can I love you more with my thinking? What's, hind- what, what's crowding out my thought life in terms of you, God, and my love for you, my affection for you? What do I love more than God? Evaluate that and move towards God. The charismatic movement has moved, you know, its whole emphasis on loving God with emotion and experiences to the detriment of loving God with your thinking. And on the other hand, the the liberal elites have said, you know, you can love God as a stoic and love him with your mind and be more cerebral and you don't have to worry about emotion. But it's, it's the total package, it's all of emotion, and it's all of your intellect, all at the same time, with, a, with an eternal mindset. To, do, to overemphasize one over against the other um, leads you away from what Christ is calling the believer to, and in particular, this man who's willing to say, what is it really all about says this is the great and first commandment, and I think that there is a sequence in order here because the second commandment isn't being asked of the lawyer. Jesus just includes it in verse 39. He's giving this incredible answer, and it's an unassailable answer. He says this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? Well, a neighbor, first and foremost, would be a fellow Jew in the context of the Jews. It also would be a resident alien who would come into Israel. 
It also would be someone who is in deep need in the light of your you know, providential walk. You remember the Good Samaritan story, how the man was um, sort of bludgeoned by people and, and, and you know, overtaken by thieves and, and left for dead. And then the religious people walked by, but the Good Samaritan walked by and loved his neighbor. And Jesus is quoting Leviticus chapter 10, 29 to 37 to say, this is what it means to love your neighbor and you love him as yourself. Isn't it wrong to love ourselves? So what does this mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, obviously there's a fleshly way to love yourself. There's a wrong way to love yourself where our sin makes us predisposed to love ourselves. But there's also a, what, what I would call a survival instinct to love yourself. You love yourself enough to eat food. You love yourself enough to sleep. You love yourself enough to have friends. And you take care of yourself in a healthy way by God's design. When you become a believer, which is you're loving God with everything you've got, then God builds in Holy Spirit levels of capacity where then you can flow out and love people just like you would instinctively love yourself. It becomes actually um, automatic. You love, just as you would take care of yourself and your own physical needs, you see other people's needs, both physical and spiritual, and you want to flow out to them love because you first love God. You love him, and so it flows out to love other people. This is a symbiotic relationship. When you love God, you will love other people. The Bible says in James chapter 2, faith without works is what? Dead. You're not going to just walk by people who have needs where you have the capacity to meet those needs and just leave them stranded. That means you don't first have the love of God in you. But if you love God, then you're, you're viewing your whole life and your whole meaning of life under that banner. Then out of that overflow is love for your neighbor, love for other people. This is what Paul talks about in the neighbor that you would have as a spouse, Husbands, love your wife, Ephesians 5, 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Speaking of that survival instinct. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. It becomes automatic to love someone who is your neighbor. Now, there is a misuse of love Loving your neighbor as yourself that's been misused even in the political arena. And we know that um, as of late political agendas where there's guilt pressure put on society to say, hey, you better do this or you don't love your neighbor. You've heard that, right? I mean, in October of 2022, which wasn't too long ago in California, there was a blog um, under the banner Stand to Reason, Clear Thinking Christianity. They said in recent weeks, one California politician, this was last year, politician running for office launched an ad campaign involving the placement of multiple billboards in several states. The message, come to California and get an abortion. One of the billboards is especially offensive due to its misappropriation of scripture. The sign reads, need an abortion? California is ready to help. In small letters, the ad cites Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, quote, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. The billboard misrepresents the scriptures as well as what it means to love. Now, I actually know 
what the agenda behind a billboard like that would be. It's like reach out to a woman in need who's desperate, who doesn't know what to do. So you're loving that person. I understand that. But is that biblical love? Biblical love is not to lead a woman to have her baby murdered. Um, Biblical love is having a woman understand the scripture, understanding that she has life in the womb, understanding that there's care, there's love, there's support. Here's the doctrine of adoption. Here's the way that that would work out. Biblical love also would be defined as reaching out to someone who's had an abortion, somebody who's underwent that kind of pain, understanding the grace of God, understanding the mercy of forgiveness, understanding that her baby is in heaven waiting for her there. I mean, that's describing biblical love that starts with God, that is filtered through God's word. That's loving your neighbors yourself. Anything less or more than that is worldly and it's manipulative. And I just think it's important to point that out because people will leverage the scripture in wrong-headed ways. God-centered love will flow out to others. It's never a contradiction to who God is or what he stands for. So the Pharisees, or this lawyer's mind, must have been blown away at this moment. He's understanding the meaning of life. You love God with all of your being. It's the first and great commandment. You love your neighbors yourself. And then verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything boils down to this one thing. Now, the simplicity of this is so easy to miss. It's like, really? You know, I mean, it it boils down to love God and love neighbor and that's it? Yeah, that's it. But it's like the gospel. The gospel is as as like shallow the shallow end of the ocean where little kids can walk out up to their knees and play in the shore break safely as they look off into the distant, you know, two, three miles away horizon where you have ocean liners and oil tankers, you know, slowly moving along in the deepest over the deepest depths of the ocean. That's like the gospel where the gospel is Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I love him. I've asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and give me a new heart and I'm saved. That's a childhood conversion or a teenage teenager conversion or a, a simple minded person's conversion. And then you have the depths of theology, which are plumbing the depths that we can never go in terms of the unfathomable, the unfathomable nature of God that is bound up in the grace of the gospel. It's incredible. That's the ocean of the saving message of the gospel, and it's found here in Christ. What do I do? The lawyer's going, what do I do? I've achieved it all, and I'm left empty. I know everything there is to know about God, and I really don't know God. Love him with everything you've got, and that's going to flow a life of love for everybody else, for everybody else. It's the meaning of life. Love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This comes from saving grace. It's where the law of God, instead of it becoming the law of self-achievement, is the law of love. It's the means to love. It's the way to a soft heart. Paul said this in Romans 13. He said, oh, no man anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. If, you've, if you have a change, transformed, loving heart, you fulfill the law. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. This is the second table of the Ten Commandments. Any other commandment is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing the Ten Commandments. You're fulfilling the first four to not make idols, to not take the Lord's name in vain, 
um, to, to not, you know, worship a different God. All of that is covered by loving the true God with everything you got. And then living for others and not sinning comes from loving your neighbor as yourself from a transformed heart. We could go on and talk about that. But let's just um, kind of flip to the end of the story with this Pharisee, scribe, lawyer, Mark 12, 32. Listen to this. This is the end of the, the account from Mark. Viewing this story through what happened in his heart. It says, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, this lawyer had something right. He said the priority is to get God right, the one true God, and then to love him with all of your being. That's, that's way the priority, more the priority than all the sacrificial system. All the doing of religion. So he was becoming clear that it's all about God and not about himself. All about God, not about religion. All about grace and knowing the true God versus works and self-righteousness. What did Jesus say to him? And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What does he mean that he's not far from the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, that he's not yet saved. Second, that he's close to being saved. And third, that he's standing right in front of Jesus who could save him. You're not far from the kingdom. You're not, hint, hint, far from the king. How close do you need to be without not truly being converted? It's kind of a wonderful and awful thought at the same time. It's like you're outside. There's still the invisible force field of coming into the kingdom of God. You've not quite stepped over and said, I love you with a transformed heart, uh, all by grace. And I love you with heart, mind, and soul. And I'll give you all my strength and all of my life. And out of that, I'm going to love other people as quickly as I would love myself. You're not far. And the next paragraph next week is going to open up where open up this idea of Jesus asking this question. He asked this question. I'll just here's a preview. Verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? This is right before Jesus goes dark, right before he starts, stops talking. He's just reaching out to the Jews one more time saying, hey, what do you think about the Messiah? Can we just talk a little more? I want to hear your heart. There was a young man that I discipled uh, by assignment. I was a discipler of him during his college years, and he was one of my student leaders. I had a heart for him and would often talk about the Lord with him, but I became concerned with him because all that he would ever be found reading, he was a Ben Shapiro-like thinker, really quick thinker, really intimidating um, Bible scholar, young scholar in college where he would intimidate all the Bible teachers. He knew the Bible better than the teachers. I even heard one of them talk about that privately, that he was intimidated by this young man. 
And, uh, but I would find him in his room reading not just the Bible, but he would also read extra biblical literature, even false doctrine. He would read the Book of Mormon. He would read the New Century Bible. He wanted to read through whatever he could in false religion to be able to disprove it. That was why he believed he was reading it. He wanted to be able to say, and I think it was, he was puffed up with pride, but he wanted to be able to say that he had read it so that he could refute it when he evangelized people who subscribed to that stuff. Ultimately, I met with him one time and I said, you know, it seems like when you talk about the Lord or talk about fellowship or talk about the Bible, you're always talking about it in terms of a debate or a conflict or a controversy. And that concerns me. I remember he was stunned by that. Well, later he went on, he got married um, during college, um, married a girl who was part of a solid family, solid church, and he kind of took her into liberalism. He went to a liberal seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, and um, he went there and became a liberal pastor. And he became, um, I later called him to talk to him and confront him about his um, circumstances. And he said, you know, I was the first pastor in my Southern Californian city that um, married the first gay couple or homosexual couple in that city. He was proud of that. I got in contact with him because I had seen on a blog that he had written um, years and years ago that was titled His Untestimony, where he had basically deconstructed his faith. And then years later, um, just we, my wife and I found out we cared about him, still pray for him, think about him, that his sister had been tragically killed in a car accident. And we called him, we were talking to him and you know, sharing with him. Uh, my wife had, you know, lost a sibling before, so we're trying to relate, you know, and reach out to him. And he said, you know, uh, he basically said he had nowhere to go. He was completely hopeless and just sad in his discouragement and sort of standing for his untestimony instead of coming back to Christ. He used to love John Piper, and he used to always quote to me, God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied in him. And... Uh, I asked him about that quote. I said, you used to quote that very thing to me over and over and over again. What do you believe about that now? And he had nothing to say back. He was not far from the kingdom, but he was not yet inside the kingdom. And so I bring that sad story up just to say there's a sobriety to this text because it just sort of falls off. We don't really know exactly what happens to this scribe. We know that this lawyer, scribe, Pharisee, clearly understood the gospel, clearly understood the truth, clearly understood the meaning of life, had satisfaction given to him for that answer, and yet he was still not far from the kingdom. Don't fall short of the glory of God, right? Know Christ personally. If you've not yet given your all to Christ, give your all to him. He's given all of who he is to you. Give all of who you are to him. This is the gospel according to Jesus.